Hi, this is Sarah, and welcome to the Sketchy Folk Podcast. All right, hello. Welcome to episode seven of the Sketchy Folk Podcast. Today, I'm going to tell you about a more contemporary artist. Um, this is a guy I learned about appropriately during my contemporary art class when I was in college. Um, and that was definitely a class I went into not looking forward to at all. Um, I, if you haven't picked up on it, am personally really interested in like movie concept art and animation and goofy things like that, basically. (laughs) Although, you know, I have a lot of appreciation for other kinds of artwork. I love going to art museums and things like that. Contemporary art sometimes to me can be a little, the moment I'm coming up with exclusionary, which is not a word, um, maybe not welcoming of other people. Mm, I'm totally drawing a blank. I'm getting a lot of snooty, kind of snotty. I don't know. Basically people who get some level of enjoyment out of watching people who don't get their artwork. So I wasn't super looking forward to this class, but when I was actually taking it, our teacher was amazing and she did a really great job kind of explaining what we were looking at, essentially. (laughs) And basically a big part of what I got from that class was it really helps to know a lot about the artist when you're looking at the artwork, which might seem obvious, but for example, you can look at Van Gogh's Starry Night painting that we talked about a few episodes ago and you don't have to know all that much about Van Gogh to still look at it and think about it as an interesting painting on its own. I'm going to tell you about an artist named Felix Gonzalez Torres. I would like to apologize in advance because my pronunciation of these like Spanish words is not going to be fabulous. Felix Gonzalez Torres was born in Guaymaro, Cuba in 1957. Growing up, he had a sister named Gloria and two other siblings. And in my research about his childhood, I was a little uncertain. There's essentially, let me just get into this first bullet here. One source I looked at said that they lived in an orphanage in Madrid for a period of time until they settled in Puerto Rico with relatives the year Gonzalez Torres was born. So his first year was kind of rocky. But essentially, another source I looked at said that didn't happen until they were teenagers, so I'm honestly not completely sure. Um, I did find that when he was seven years old, his father bought him a set of watercolors, and this was really kind of the jumping off point from when he decided that he was really interested in art and making art and wanted to do that for his career. The other source I found said that in 1971, That was the year that Gonzalez Torres and his sister Gloria were sent to Spain, and then they moved to Puerto Rico with an uncle. Um, And then in 1981, the rest of his family escaped from Cuba during the Mariel boat lift. Gonzalez Torres graduated from school in 1976. Um, He had attended the Colegio San George, I'm going to say. And then he began studying art at the University of Puerto Rico in San Juan. There, he was a pretty big part of the local art scene. He really involved himself in it, and that really helped to develop his areas of interest. Then, in 1979, he received a study fellowship, and he moved to New York City, which, for me, would be just a 
mind-boggling move. I was there for a few days a couple years ago, and that was overwhelming. So I can't even imagine moving there. That's a me problem, I think, but still. So the next year, he was invited to participate in the Whitney Independent Study Program, which is pretty prestigious. There, he was introduced to the concept of critical theory, which becomes a huge part of his work. So critical theory is an assumption that most of the world's problems are caused more by the constructs of society than individual or psychological factors. So theorists also use critical theory to use knowledge of the societal constructs and issues of the world to reflect attention back to the issues and how to address them. So my understanding is essentially that, for example, if someone is homeless, it's not because that person failed and they're homeless. It's because society is not set up in a way to help that person not be homeless. And that's something you see examples of a lot where a person, you know, gets laid off from their job. They can't make rent, so they get kicked out and they're living in their car. And then they're trying really hard to find a new job. But in order to get a job, you have to have an address and they don't have an address. Or, you know, they like you hear all kinds of horror stories. So we see examples of this. It's not the most outlandish idea. But at the time, it was relatively a new way of thinking. So he received a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Photography from the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York um, in the year 1983. So at this time, he was about 26 years old. He participated that year in the Whitney Independent Study Program for a second time. And then he had his first solo exhibition hosted by Printed Matter Incorporated in 1984. So at this point, he started really collaborating with a lot of different organizations and doing a lot of travel. Um, and all of this kind of helped shape his work at a pretty early stage. So in 1986, he traveled to and studied in Venice, Italy. Um, then in 1987, he earned a Master's of Fine Arts from the International Center of Photography and NYU. He worked as an adjunct art instructor at NYU until 1989. And he also briefly worked at the California Institute of the Arts, which we know as CalArts. So that's the school that um, used to be called Chouinard, where we talked about Mary Blair and Chuck Jones both going there. So it's really just kind of a little central spot. So during all this time, he was openly involved in social and political uprisings. Um, and a lot of what he was working toward were gay rights. Um, and he was openly a gay man. He didn't try to hide it. He just kind of did his thing. Um, <clears throat> he was part of a group called Group Material from 1987 to 1991. And this group worked collaboratively to educate the community and spark cultural activism. The group included other artists named Doug Ashford, Julie Alt, and Karen Ramsbacher. They were based out of New York City, so it was, again, another place where he was able to find peers that supported what he was trying to do and um, help drive his artwork and his activism toward what it eventually culminated to be. Another inspiration for Gonzalez Torres was Bertolt Brecht's theory of epic theater. So this theory posits that acts of sharing creativity can turn the person viewing the artwork into an active participant in it rather than a passive observer, and this can incite action or response on the matter. So basically what this means is if you're looking at a painting, you're just looking at a painting. And so that would be the opposite of this theory. What Bertolt 
Brecht, that's a hard name to say, believes is that if you're looking at a painting of, we'll go back to the same example, a homeless man, it might make you feel uncomfortable about the fact that you see homeless people and then on your walk home you see a bunch of homeless people sitting on the sidewalk and eventually this might help inspire you to help do something about homelessness. So all of this kind of led to Gonzalez Torres's artwork being very conceptual and very minimal. It uses everyday objects and he kind of did this with, for the purpose of bridging the gap between the art and the viewer and the concept. So if he used a bunch of crazy materials we couldn't even identify, people would kind of look at it and be more likely to just kind of keep walking and not see what they're looking at. But if they see a light bulb, they at least know what that light bulb is and that can help kind of pull them into it a little bit better. Some of the themes of his artwork include love, loss of love, illness, healing, gender, and again, sexuality. So in 1987, he began creating a series he dubbed the Dateline Pieces. For these works, he would generate lists of dates in print on black paper with white ink, and he would intersperse these dates with names of political figures or events. So he kind of left it up to the viewer to consider the relationship between the dates and the other elements, and he would also create portraits like this in which the um, dates and names were related to the subject in a way that isn't specified. A kind of challenging thing about his artwork is that they are all called untitled. Sometimes they had parenthetical addendums, so it would be untitled, and then in parentheses it would say public opinion, for example. Um, but this was a deliberate thing on his part, which I find interesting, but also it's fine. My assumption, I guess, is that he did this with the intention of continuing to keep his projects very conceptual, because if he had an artwork and it was just called something, that would color your idea of what it is right away, instead of letting the viewer kind of form their own understanding of it. Um, my two thoughts on that are, A, he called it untitled and then in the parentheses put a different title, so I don't, to me that kind of negates the first point I just made there. And B, I do think, I guess personally, I find it helpful when there's a title sometimes. I like having that jumping off point. Um, so, you know, it was just part of his process and his work that's worth mentioning. And we'll just leave it at that. One of the really fascinating things that he did with his artwork was physically break down the barrier between his artwork and the viewer. So the work I just mentioned, which was called Untitled Public Opinion from 1991, was the first work of art of his that I actually saw and it's literally just a pile of candy on the floor like wrapped up hard candy you know like grandma would have in her purse butterscotchies cinnamon whatever just pile of candy on the floor the odd thing about it though is that passers-by are encouraged to take a piece of candy as they go through so if you're unfamiliar typically in an art museum you're lucky if you're even allowed to take pictures I remember the first time I went to an art museum panicking because there were signs on the door saying you aren't allowed to take in a pen and being the nerd that I am I always have four or five pens in my purse so I had to make a mad dash out to the car and was all flustered when I got back in um, and then god forbid you try to touch a piece of artwork I think you would be tackled to the floor by these docents from the museum but for this particular work 
it was actually encouraged for you to take candy with you. So it wasn't refilled super regularly, so it's not like the pile of candy looked the same every time. It would visibly get depleted, and then the museum would restock it occasionally, but part of the point was that it would visibly diminish before it's restocked. He made 19 of these pieces, and of those, six can be identified as portraits. And by identified, I mean maybe in the title um, or something else he said about it. So two of the portraits are of Gonzalez Torres's partner, whose name was Ross Laycock. One is a portrait of his father. One is of a close friend of his named Marcel Brion. And then two are double portraits of Gonzalez Torres and, again, his partner, Ross. As you may have noticed already, Ross Laycock was a massive part of Felix Gonzalez Torres's life. Ross was a Canadian who moved to New York City in 1980. He studied biochemistry and English in Toronto and then settled into a career back in New York as a sommelier and an AIDS activist. The two met in 1983, and it was then that their long-term relationship began. They were incredibly close, but Ross was unfortunately diagnosed with AIDS, and he battled it for some time before he passed away in 1991. In 1989, he began using stacks of paper kind of the same way. So the paper oftentimes was printed with photographs, sometimes with text or other imagery, and then the viewers were encouraged to take a sheet of paper with them. So the point of this, I guess, was that as the supply diminished, Gonzalez Torres wanted viewers to consider the fragility of life and how life itself is diminished with every passing moment. Kind of reflected back to how he had to watch Ross get sick and pass away. He often used works like this to cope with this loss that he experienced um, because it was just incredibly hard for him and anyone else that's experienced this to have to watch the diminishing of a person that you really care about. So as I mentioned, this really flies in the face of the concept of art being some kind of precious object. Normally, you can't. it's not something you can get close to. It's certainly not something you can touch. Um, even Marcel Duchamp's urinal, which is something I will absolutely talk about in the future, um, it's preserved, and then there are copies of it shared everywhere. But Gonzalez Torres really wanted to connect with the viewers much more literally. So in 1991, he began showing works that were consisting of metal rods that were strung with beads, and these were supposed to be reminiscent of like the curtains at a disco. The titles of these, though, it sounds all bright and happy, but they were things like Untitled and then in parentheses Chemo, or Untitled and in parentheses Blood. So you look and expect to see something really happy, and then when you look at the titles, it really flips in a completely different direction. Another of Gonzalez Torres' artwork that really kind of threw me for a loop when, again, my teacher explained what it meant <laughs> whenever I was in college, is called Untitled and then in parentheses, Perfect Lovers. And this artwork is consisting of two clocks hung on a wall right beside each other. They just look like normal clocks, like you would see in a classroom, just plain white with black numbers, nothing fancy at all. And at the beginning of the exhibition, they would always be set to the same time, and they'd run like normal. They're just two clocks on a wall beside each other. So to start with, obviously, they're running in perfect synchronicity. But after time, inevitably, one of them, or both of them, they kind of get off. They aren't running quite the same anymore. Um, and he lets it go until one of the clock batteries dies. It's really heartbreaking, 
when you think about it. But I think it's a really interesting representation of what it's like to be in a relationship with someone. And then eventually you kind of drift apart and some something, whether it's illness and death or just a breakup or whatever, will separate you inevitably. Really literal at the same time that it's really conceptual, which I think is interesting. So again, as you may have picked up on, picked up on, there is a consistent metaphor in a lot of his work of the process his materials undergo. So he uses clocks, light bulbs, piles of things that people take from, and it always kind of turns around to be a metaphor for death, which is pretty dark, but also a common thing that people experience. In 1992, 24 billboards around New York City were plastered with his latest project, which was a black and white photo of his personal unmade bed. Um, and you could kind of see the imprint remaining of two people. So it kind of looks like two people had just gotten up out of the bed. On one hand, it was supposed to be a bit of kind of an ode to the idea that people pair up in life and it's just kind of a nice thing. Um, it was, of course, a memorial to Ross as well. It also was a really interesting way to make people think about the discomfort, especially at the time, of something private becoming public. So obviously your unmade bed is something you kind of hide away in your bedroom. People don't see it. They don't get to know how messy you really are. And so for him to plaster this on billboards all around New York City kind of made you feel a little uncomfortable, like you're seeing something you're not supposed to be, even though it's just a pile of sheets. But his point, basically, is that this mindset is really harmful to society, especially at the time, a big, I say big, a massive issue that people were dealing with, especially around him, was this AIDS virus. And half of the problem was that people didn't want to hear about it. They didn't, it was, it was a gross thing. It was an unsavory thing. And so it was kind of hidden. And if we just had it out in the public awareness, people would be able to avoid it easier. People could maybe have a cure for it a lot better. Um, it wouldn't be something that people hide and then spread around. Um, it would literally save lives. So again, in 1992, he was granted a DAAD fellowship to work in Berlin. And then in 1993, he won another fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. During his lifetime, he participated in hundreds of group shows. So notable ones include the Artist Space in 1987, White Columns in 1988, the Whitney Biennial in 1991, the Venice Biennial in 1993, Site Santa Fe in 1995, and the Sydney Biennial in 1996. Sadly, on January 9th of 1996, Felix Gonzalez Torres passed away in Miami from complications due to AIDS. So since his death, numerous retrospectives have been shown of his work, and then I think it's helpful to here, you know, from the artist himself. So about his artwork, Gonzalez Torres once stated that it was much more powerful to assume that the gay and straight audience was the same audience, that being a Cuban-born American is the same as being an American. So I find that to be a pretty interesting perspective where you kind of, you don't try to cater to people as being different and you try to kind of bring them together. So interestingly, despite the temporal nature of his artwork and kind of the conceptuality of it, I guess. In 2010, one of his piles of candy that he made called The Portrait of Marcel Briand in 1992 sold for $4.6 million at Philips Dupuri and Company. One of his paper stacks that people take 
Um, that artwork sold at Sotheby's in 2011 for $1.6 million. And then another of his piles of candy called Untitled L.A. from 1991 sold at Christie's Art Auction in 2015 for $7.7 million. So finally, I just wanted to share one more quote from the artist. He said, without the public, these works are nothing. I ask the public to help me, to take responsibility, to become part of my work, to join in. And I think he's talking about his artwork, but he's also talking about the, the issues he was advocating for. So some things that I think we can kind of take away from Felix Gonzalez Torres' story is first to let what's happening around you influence your artwork. Um, there's a lot going on in the world. There always has been, and it seems like right now it's just insane. Uh, I guess it's kind of an aside, but I've spent a lot of time wondering lately if, if if it's just my age, if it just seems like there's a lot more going on because I'm paying more attention to it now, or if it really is just the world's imploding. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on. But um, as tempting as it can be sometimes to kind of just sit in a room and make everything just flow from your imagination and your imagination only, your work can be more fulfilling for you if you let what's going on around you come out through your artwork. And I think it can also connect to other people a little bit better um, because it's going to be things that they're going through as well. So obviously you don't have to make a bunch of conceptual artwork that's issues-based, but I don't think it's something you should restrict from being in your artwork, I guess. And then another part of his story that I really love is the amount of education he sought. So I definitely think you should always just study as much as you can. The more you learn, whether it's about artwork or issues outside of artwork, the more you can put into your your work and your life. And I mean, I guess I like to learn. I'm a nerd, but that's fine, <laughs> you know. Um, but I don't think more education can ever be harmful to anyone. So that is the fabulous story of Felix Gonzalez Torres. Um, you should absolutely look up some images of his artwork. As much as it was something that you're mainly supposed to participate in, I really think it's also just really interesting. And like I said, normally this isn't quite my jam. So definitely check it out. I guess let's just go ahead into the weekly challenge for this week. So for day one, the word is light bulb. For day two, it's move. For day three, it's Cuba. For day four, it's candy. And day five is billboard. So I know I kind of neglected to explain this in the past few episodes. This is just a daily, I call it an art challenge, but make it a whatever is going to make you happy challenge. If you like to draw, decorate cakes, design t-shirts, I mean, whatever, whatever. Write a poem, make a song, whatever's going to make you happy. Um, these are just kind of ideas for each day that you can use to kind of inspire something for you to do. And then I would love for you to share it with me. So on Instagram, you can find me at, at Sketchy Folk Podcast. Please, if you do make and want to share your artwork, tag at Sketchy Folk Podcast in your image or in your description. You know how this works. I'm not cool. No one's surprised by that fact. I'm trying though. So if you have an idea of another artist you'd like me to cover, any thoughts on anything I've already covered, I um, just want to say hi. My email is sketchyfoldpodcast at gmail.com. And I hope you follow the podcast on your chosen podcast listening platform. Um, I'm pretty sure at this point I'm on Spotify, 
Breaker, which I hadn't heard of, but that's cool. Um, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, obviously Anchor. Um, so wherever floats your boat, go ahead and subscribe. That way you will get a notification every week when I post a new episode. Um, I'm aiming for Mondays, so hopefully that'll stay consistent for you. Thanks for listening, and I guess we'll sketch you later. <laughs> Bye.